Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy! I think what we're going to do is Victoria's going to read for a bit, and then uh, we'll have a conversation, and then we will open it up for whatever questions you guys might have. And before we start, uh, thanks for being here. It's uh, great to see such a nice crowd. So I'm going to start to read, but um, first I want to say thank you to Seth. Um, I'll just give this little piece of information right from the tip of things, which is that Seth and I grew up in the same town. We went to the same public high school. Um, his brother was in my grade. I wasn't in the just a little older than me. Um, and uh, so that's just a completely cool thing. And we haven't seen each other probably since... Um, it's been about four decades. In yeah. fact, we... we when years. We met... Just to, just to paint a picture, when we met, I was, I was, I think, 15, and you were 12. Yeah, probably, something like about. that, 11, yeah. 12. So, that's, uh, and that's... What? Uh, the Scarsdale High School. Scarsdale. Yeah. Um, so thank you all for coming. It's really sweet looking out. I'm seeing people who uh, were my students uh, when they were 17 and now have grown uh, little children. And I'm seeing uh, people from all different pieces of my life, the uh, children of other friends of mine, friends of mine, um, relations of mine. I'm going to read a little bit uh, through the book. Um, and not in sort of a chapter because the book moves uh, in these small chunks or segments. Uh, it rotates even in third person through the minds of probably 10 characters. Um, uh, and I, I can't remember if I, I, I'm gonna read in a couple different characters kind of points of view. So uh, I'll just start with the very first moment. Each of them have little titles. And this is the opening segment, and it's called Simply Said, and it sort of frames things. I'll set some of the stuff up as we need to. Simply Said. On a late March day when you could hear springs, when you could taste spring's muddy tang, Anna was given the results from the new scans. Anna, who had done it well, actually managed a couple get well miracles, simply said no more. Secret. Days earlier, when the eldest boy was alone in the room with her, Mama, he held her hand. She nodded her head to show she was awake. Mom, I have a secret to tell you. She smiled. He was her first child, now a grown man. Oh, those years she'd spent unnecessarily worrying about Julian. Shy boy, the one to play at the corner of the schoolyard where the pavement wielded to weedy scrub. A boy poking sticks into dirt. 
serious and happy and unworried about kids whizzing past him. Got you, they screamed, tagging a shoulder, not his. At pickup, she'd ached watching him happy, alone. She wanted him to be in the center of the playing field calling teams the one named captain. Now, here he was, a gentle man, still quiet with a boy's stuttery laugh, still happiest in the woods foraging for black morals and ramps. Mom, Julian said again, I have a secret. She nodded. Can you open your eyes? She'd do anything for him. His eyes were so heavy, nickel-lidded, heavier even than the given doses, heavy with some thickness she could feel weighted in her bones, in her blood. She opened her eyes. Beautiful. It was his father's face he wore, that halo of curly dark hair. The light was behind him. She saw the lace of the curtains and through the curtains the trees of the yard. Her lace, her window with the crystal hanging on filament in the yard where her three children had played. So slightly hers, any of it anymore. Yes, baby. He said, we're having a baby. There was a rush, happiness, left for the having. Even in these last days, she'd felt happiness, momentary, sometimes sharp, almost like pain. Here, though, was the apex. We don't want anyone to know, not yet, but we want you to know. The baby of her first baby. She had loved the shape of him, unborn inside of her, so much that when she came to full term, she'd hoped for a long birth. Wanting, she said, for each moment to be exceptional, hers to savor. And then the joke for years with friends was that after hours into her labor, curled into some jagged harbor of agony, she'd begged for drugs. But at the end, there was this child, perfect lips, hands, feet, and she was forever changed. She sat up in the bed and kissed her son. You'll be a wonderful father, she whispered. She kept a hand at his shoulder and she looked at him, working to make her face clear and direct. She wanted him to have this, his mother beholding the father he was becoming. There was wind through the window, spring air, a last best secret. She smiled. I won't tell a soul. Um, I'm going to jump far ahead. Uh, so <clears throat> there's a group of friends that Anna has, a group of women friends who have known her since they were kids together. And when she <clears throat> moves herself, as you can see from what I've read, into hospice, they kind of crowd up to her place to hang out with her. And um, she doesn't want them. She wants them. All that happens. And there's a bunch of other friends, new friends, old friends, um, who are around. So I'm going to start with a little bit from that section. Assessment. You've done well, Anna. The doctor's broad fingers were light on her wrist. Her eyes took in the rail on the mechanical bed, the gray plastic commode in the corner. I wish I'd done it better. Prayer. Someone had ringed the house in prayer flags. Jesus. This kind of nonsense makes Anna want to puke, Helen said. You're about to meet all the sort of the old friends group of names. Forget puke, Molly said. It's made her want to die. <laughs> and now I understand why, said Helen. 
All the window women laughed so hard they could barely catch a breath. Bundled close to one another, they moved in a pod toward where sunlight quilted on the ground. Who has done this? Molly demanded. They stood halfway up the long drive, looking back at the dark-stained house. Colorful handmade flags were strung along the A-frame roof line. Embroidered and painted words of encouragement. A roomy poem stitched across two joined flags. It's the local women, Helen spun in a circle as if she'd catch an intruder. The hospice, the flags, it's basically all their fault. Helen, you have certifiably flipped. Ming was laughing so hard she could barely speak. Con Caroline managed. No, Ming, now we understand. Helen's right. They're killing her, New Age style. Alert the authorities. <laughs> officer, officer, Molly waved her arms. I am going to pee my pants, Helen squealed. You are got to stop it. Kegel, woman. Kegel, Molly <laughs> commanded. They couldn't stop. The quips, the puns, the laughing, leaning on each other for support. They couldn't bear to stop. Halfway up the hill, the four women looked back at the decorated house where Anna had asked to be alone with Reuben and the doctor. Oregon. I'm going to need a little more help, Anna said as soon as she'd sent Reuben out for a glass of water. You need to help me. She'd fixed on John, that's the doctor who we've met a second before, widening her green eyes, tilt of her shoulder, using all of the tricks, flirting her way right up to the end. He had to give her that. I can't do it, Anna. He couldn't pretend he didn't, he could pretend he didn't know what she was talking about, but he did. John, you know you can't resist me, Anna vamped. Always been a looker. She'd used it well, openly, and without consequence. Tragic now, the twist of gaunt and swollen, her blinking eyes. Not allowed, not in Massachusetts. Do you really feel that's right, John? It doesn't matter what I feel. It's the law, Anna. So can't we pretend this is Oregon? <laughs> sure, John played right back. He had to give it to her. She was quick. She was an original. He'd been through enough of these conversations, though, to believe she wasn't as certain as she sounded. We won't tell anybody, Anna grinned. Not Reuben, not Connie. You'll have to ask me in 15 days. No, she swiveled, her face reset from coy to resolute. I'm ready now or over the weekend when the kids leave. But we're playing Oregon, right? John pulled his case onto his lap, an old-fashioned doctor's bag. Most of his colleagues had long ago switched out to the more casual instrument-rigged backpack. But John found it comforting, calming his hands along the worn leather skin. In Oregon, there's an oral request and then a 15-day hold till the patient can make a second oral request and then a written request. Anna flipped John the bird. She waggled her finger for emphasis. What did I miss? Reuben backed through the door. What's going on? He stood by the bed, balancing three glasses of water in his hands, looking between Anna and John to figure out what was the weird vibe that was ricocheting around the room. Just your lovely Anna trying to seduce me and make me break my sacred vows yet again, John said, blowing her a kiss. Reuben handed John a glass and he clinked an imaginary toast. Well, so does this mean it's a full-on swap and I can move on my 20-year infatuation with Connie, Reuben said, winking at Anna. So now I'm going to give you a little dose of Anna, of, of Connie. Connie's John's 
the doctor's wife and Anna's friend. Leverett, which is the town they live in, fruit tree. Leverett fruit tree. Connie stood calf deep in the dug dirt of the side yard. This was a two-person job. She was flat out idiotic to take it on alone. But John was at the hospital, and then he was checking in on Anna. He'd asked Connie to wait with the tree, and they'd do it over the weekend. If she was so worried about keeping the bare roots in the bucket, he suggested digging a shallow trench to temporarily heal in the tree. Anyway, he reminded her there was a good chance of rain, freezing rain, but it was going in today. Had to be. She had the time. She'd been all but banished from Anna's by Helen last night on the phone. We're coming up to spend the night, Helen said. The old friends would love to be alone with her. So Connie had nothing but time. No trench, no healing in. She wasn't taking a chance to kill the tree. She needed this second pear tree for the trees to cross-pollinate and begin bearing fruit. She was getting the tree in the ground, and that was going to be the real trick, not digging the hole but hefting the tree, keeping it upright, not listing to one side while she filled the hole back in. There was an impressive hill of sod loosely mounded around it. Her fingers were numb. She ditched the work gloves. Useless. They were John's and they kept slipping off. Blisters or not, she needed a grip on the spade's T-handle. The hole needed to double in size. The width had to double for the root ball to fit. The good part was that digging curbed her mind, narrowed the straggly, ugly thoughts. She was like a one-woman chain gang of repetitive phrases that mimicked the shovel. She was pissed. She wasn't really used to being pissed off. Not part of her emotional arsenal. Hurt, guilt, insecurity. Yeah, plenty of those three. She'd pretty much terraced and landscaped her yard. Lilacs, dogwoods, a rose trellis, the perennial and herb gardens, her meditation rock garden with its spiral stone path. Just managing that trio of negativity. But this morning, she'd woken trembling, and she thought she had a fever until she realized it was pissed off fury. She jammed the shovel. Fuck. She tossed a scatter of dirt. Fuck. She jammed again. She never cursed. She pried out a rock. She lobbed it. Fuck, fuck, fuck. Connie was a cursing fool now, and it worked for digging, that was for sure. Anna, she'd always been a mad cursor. The crassest things came out of Anna's mouth. Shocking as it was for Connie in the first years of getting to know Anna, over the years it became something she treasured. You could just see Anna's satisfied smirk now. I knew I'd drag you over to the naughty side. But how would Anna like knowing Connie was shoveling dirt to the rhythm of fuck the old friends, fuck the old friends. God, Connie hated that smug title. And what about the smug tone in Helen's voice last night? Connie, can you also let the others know the old friends are coming up and we'd love time with Anna? And then as if that bullshit wasn't enough, there was the condescending, I hope you know, Connie, we really appreciate everything the new friends are doing. Sure, Helen, she'd said. It'll be good for Anna to have you with her. Now, knee-deep in a hole, Connie had no shortage of other responses. From the emphatic phone-slamming, fuck you, Helen, to the cooler tone jabbed. Actually, Helen, here's the deal. Whatever you love and appreciate doesn't really mean anything because Anna isn't interested in time alone with anyone. Not her own kids, not her brother. So get off your high best friend horse that says showing up here with your old friend gang is going to brighten her day. The blade struck a 
metal vibration twinging through her arm. It jolted up her neck. She leaned over and wedged out a small boulder, heaved it, struck rock again. Gardening in this valley, you really had to respect the old farmers and their stone walls. Maybe she should have simply said, that's 20 years of new friend, Helen. That's 20 years of soccer carpool and riding practice carpool and Wednesday and Friday morning speed walks and showing up any time at each other's back door when we needed a break from the kids or the husbands or just needed to show each other a new pair of suede boots we'd splurged on. And then when the kids were at college and we'd go out to dinner midweek first because we were free and then and didn't have to cook and then because it actually was sad not to have kids to cook for. And oh, there was the weekly driving to Springfield for the chemo infusions, or sitting on a chair when she was at a tube for an MRI, or her seeing me through the foot surgery and the breast scare, or any of the other single things we did that Anna and I did together for the last 20 years of being new fucking friends. <laughs> the sky loomed and bruised. Weather was coming in sooner than later. Her hands were beyond numb. Connie could smell the storm. A half-dug hole filled with rainwater would be useless. Great. So fuck John too for being right. And for the other thing he'd said while eating his morning oatmeal and raisins and nuts, he'd looked up at Connie and said, it's just a pear tree. It's not Anna. You can't make it better. Connie knew too much. She always had. She was a doctor's wife, and she was Anna's friend. And Anna hadn't been a good patient. She'd skipped appointments, checkups, ignored months of post-stem cell quarantine, infection be damned. Connie knew that Anna couldn't abide the way her friends looked wearing a surgical mask. The double loyalties put Connie in a bad position. She knew that even with a high fever, Anna had played two gigs, had gone back to teaching when the doctors had insisted that she had no immune system. Connie forced John to make house calls and pretend he was coming over to play Scrabble. When other friends asked her how she was, how Anna was doing, Connie had to sort through two camps of privileged information. Now she threw down the spade. She wiped sweat from her face and she felt the grime from her hands stick to her skin. Her lips had a sandy coating. Make it better. That was the other thing Helen had said last night. Connie, I'm worried you all have accepted the choice for hospice and she needs resistance. Maybe that was the thing that pissed Connie off the most. As if Helen could know what she, Connie, felt or accepted. She crouched and she fit herself in the hole. Fuck, she screamed it out loud. Now she breathed in the dirt. She closed her eyes and she screamed it again. She heard a car door slam. The scuffle of leaves. Probably John between patients scrambling home to help. She didn't want his help. She squinted up to the bulk shape of a woman's down parka. Even backlit, she knew it was Layla. What's going on? Layla worked to sound unfazed by the mud-caked sight of her. Thank God for Layla. Gardening, Connie stood. She climbed one big step and then another out of the hole. You need help? Connie stormed past Layla. She jammed the spade against the door. She tugged Don's gloves out of her back pocket and she clapped them till there was no more dirt, then pinned them between the spade and the shed side. She dragged the bucket with the pear tree and tilted it through the shed door. You need help? I've got a wash and then I need help and we're going over to Anna's. I made her rice pudding. I want to see her today and I don't care who's visiting and wants time alone with Anna when Anna doesn't give a flying fuck about being alone with any of us anymore. 
I'm going to read one last little section called Princess. So Anna's a math teacher, uh, but she plays in a kind of a weekend covers gig band. <laughs> this is a section called Princess. The band showed up. Everyone, like, the old friends come to visit, and, like, everybody starts showing up. Like, the old friends show up, all the new friends show up, the husband, ex-husband's there, and uh, Princess. The band showed up. Big, clean, scrubbed guys with day jobs. A carpenter, a tech guy, a gastroenterologist. The drummer, John, was a middle school librarian. Jarrett, the lead guitar, handed Anna a CD he'd mixed. Hey, princess, he said. They all called her princess. The band wouldn't sit, or couldn't. They hugged the walls, kept their hands stuffed down in the pockets of work pants like they might break something. No thanks, each politely balked when Helen offered a drink. Anna had been called princess ever since the first night when she'd gone with Connie and Layla to what Layla had heard was a decent dance band playing in the Shelburne Falls Grange. You're pretty good, Anna found herself telling the drummer and the lead guitar during the first break, but your band could use a little girl charm. And I thought being in a band would get me admired by women, the drummer joked, so I suppose you sing? Before she could say no, that it wasn't what she'd meant, Connie jumped in, think Bonnie Raitt meets Phoebe Snow. She's got serious pipes, Layla said. No matter then whatever Anna said to backtrack that she didn't sing or she did sing but only acoustic harmonies with a woman friend, the band guy said, okay, then just get up with us and be charming. Anna finally rose to their bait, I'll be a hell of a lot more for you than charming. But up on stage that first time, she was so nervous she wasn't sure she could get out a note, let alone charm. And then Jarrett, the lead guitarist, quietly said to her, Okay, princess, show us what big balls you've got. She howled, you're on. The music started, and when Anna reached for the microphone, she forgot she was basically a local math teacher and a mom. She forgot to be scared. So how are the gigs coming? Anna moved her gaze from one dopey-eyed concerned guy to the next, like something straight out of the Wizard of Oz. We're not gigging so much. They didn't lie well. There'd been a barn wedding in Coleraine two weeks ago. They'd all been hired to do All Grateful Dead. You know how that kind of a night goes, John said. Well, how's Teresa working out? Is she getting the parts down? She's no you, princess, that's for sure. Well, that's fucking lucky, you assholes, Anna said. Two dying singers and a band starts looking really creepy. <laughs> the guys laughed. This was their Anna, rough-mouthed, a girl guy, kind of a woman. No pity allowed. That was her only rule. She came back more than once, a blue wig and a black miniskirt, sugar magnolia sweet off her tongue. She made skinny as shit look hot. Give us the say-so, princess, and Teresa's fucking toast, Jarrett said. Oh, you're all big jerk-offs, so get with the program, Anna said. There's no say-so for me to give. You're going to have to bone her up for her like you all lust for me. The men roared. She'd pay later for this much effort. But with these men, Anna needed to make them feel good, to make it easy for them. She flirted, sometimes like an older sister, and sometimes as if something could happen, maybe in a snap, if only everyone weren't so entirely married. <laughs> Even in these odd, separated years with Reuben, Anna hadn't strayed. I love men, she told the band more than once. I just can't help it that ultimately I love Reuben more. 
You should get some rest, Jarrett finally said. He looked like he needed to be tucked in for a nap. We'll be back. No, Anna said. Let's say the big goodbye now. She sounded downright cheerful. They all shuffled up to her. The men were awkward and lumbering. She looked too breakable to kiss, but one by one, the big guys leaned in and they kissed Anna and said, Later, princess. Thanks. Well, but those of you who haven't read the book are in for a real treat. The book is, uh, I could, I tore through it and got all weepy and <laughs> laughed and it was really, congratulations. It's, a, Thanks, it's an impressive achievement. Um, this book comes with a, what I think is a fantastic origin story and uh, the old friends and uh, I would like it if you would tell it. Let me have another sip of water. Um, so the question is always sort of for a book, you know, what's its, um, what's the kernel or what's the origin? And um, I uh, am lucky enough to have grown up uh, with a best friend and with a best friend uh, who... Uh, brought to her a whole group of uh, other friends when we all kind of delighted in friendship and um, that friend uh, went through cancer and passed away and I was working on other another book at the time and so uh, my friend Nancy had pretty much uh, said to me oh, many times over the course of my writing life, so you should be writing about friendship. Really, you should write a book about friendship. And I said to her, well, that is really a dorky idea because um, you need a conflict for a novel. And, uh, you know, friendship has been a kind of conflict-free zone in my life. And uh, then she would gang up some of my other friends to say, you should really write about friend. What about us? What about our lives? You don't think we're interesting? And I'd say, I love you. And uh, yeah, you're interesting, but I'm not going to write a book about it. And then there was a, a point at some point um, when she was sick, uh, years before she died, and we were kind of walking uh, through a hospital, uh, you know, on a walker, getting her moving again. And she looked over at me and she said, you think we got a problem now? And, um, <laughs> you know, uh, ever one and stubborn, my friend was, but after she passed away, the work I was working on seemed pretty insubstantial to me and without interest. And I, um, you know, initially first thought that what I would... I'm giving you a long-winded answer. No, it's good. Um, I, I, I initially first thought, well, okay, let me try on the possibility of a memoir about friendship. Uh, there are a couple of memoirs about friendship that I've admired. And um, I, I wasn't... Yeah, I sort of tried a little bit, and um, the problem for me with memoir is that you actually have to tell the truth, and you have to actually tell things about people's lives that you don't, they wouldn't necessarily want you to talk about, or I wouldn't want to talk about. But the great thing about fiction is that you know you can um, composite people, invent people, you can stray from the truth, you can uh, take the truth as it happened, or what you imagine to have happened in experience and actually make it the exact opposite of what happened in experience and actually kind of find a similar or better truth. So that was a possibility. 
What was the experience like writing fiction where you're basing the characters on, on people you love? That, that seems unimaginably hard to me. I think it's much easier to write about someone you can't stand. Yeah. Do, do you agree? Yeah, uh, no. no? <laughs> I don't think I do. I don't think, I just read your book. I just read a really good, the most recent, although you have a new book coming out, so I'm going to just do the Seth plug, but you hated these I characters. I like those characters. Okay. No, I love those yeah. characters. I, I, yeah. I love those characters, exactly. but in other books I've written, they're the characters who are you know, not such great people, and they're a joy to write. Right, so I, I've loved writing difficult characters a lot. In fact, I think uh, the bulk of my work up until now has been pretty dark and difficult characters. Um, so I will say that when I was sort of first writing in the chunks of this book, which, you know, this kind of notion of chunks is what you'll see. I gave you some, sometimes the chunks are like a sentence long, a chapter is, or a section is a sentence long. Initially, even when I moved toward fiction, the characters in my head really, really resembled people I knew. And well, you, you were a poet before you were a novelist, yes. right? Yeah, okay. So the, the great thing was, as I started to, to do that, at one point I um, showed a couple of sections to one of those people who would have been, who who kind of was one of those characters. And so she read through like two of those that were that were very close to the, what I thought was very close to the actual people. And she looked at me and said, these are really boring. <laughs> these are really boring. And then she read one in which I had really strayed from anything like the actual people or I just kind of really messed them up or taken four people and another thing. And, and so... When the invention happened, you know, when I let go that I was writing about X person or Y person and the invention happened, um, it was really easy. And it was a delight, you know. I mean, isn't that's the whole thing about writing is the opportunity to imagine oneself into other people. So... Do you write intuitively, and where I'm, or, or do you do you plan? <laughs> I want to ask you about the first sentence. I love first sentences, and you read it already. And I want to go back and uh, look at it again for for the purposes of this. I think this these first two sentences are fantastic. On a late March day, when you could taste spring's muddy tang, spring's muddy tang. That's nice. Thanks. Uh, <laughs> Anna was given results from the new scans. So poetic moment, then, oh, fuck. New scans? That can't be good. You know? Then Anna, who had done, done it well, actually managed a couple of get well miracles, the implication being <laughs> not this time, simply said no more. You set up the whole book beautifully in those first two sentences. At what point in the writing process of the novel did you find the sentences? Were they the first sentences you wrote? And how long did it take you to get them to this level of composition? So that's a good question. And in the room are people who I taught when they were youngsters. And I was all about the first sentence. Yeah, I, I am. Yeah, thank you. Um, Shout out to the so, first sentence people. Uh, I'm a believer yeah. in the first sentence. So um, that wasn't the first sentence I ever wrote in this mm -hmm. book. Um, but th this book, um, I wrote in these little fragments or, or sections and I, I think partly because I was I had no planning 
is a, is the piece of it, right? Um, I, I knew I knew the frame. I knew the frame of the novel was um, a woman had put herself had decided to stop treatment and put herself into hospice. So you kind of know where that's going to go, right? Like unless I can figure out a way to make her live, <laughs> you know. Um, we uh, so. I had to figure out, since that's really not enough to make a story, what I was going to have to figure something else out inside of it, and I had no clue what that could be. Um, so I just wrote these scenes, these moments, these moments, and I would just, and they were, they were sometimes fun. They was, you know, there's, there's some really funny moments in the book. So some, and then sometimes they would be really hard to write. You know, I was writing inside of. Um, often either the mind of someone who's about to die or the mind of people who are wrestling with accepting or not accepting um, someone doing that. Plus there's whole bunches of sections where they're young and getting high. You know, so there's sections back in 1975 where they're just like smoking a doobie. And um, is that even still a word? I don't think so. <laughs> Have I just totally yeah. dated myself? Okay, not a word. Me. Excuse me. Sorry. Um, <laughs> in any case, uh, so I would just start to kind of collage it. And then um, a scene, if I paid attention enough to what had been in one scene, it would promise me the possibility of a next scene. And so then at a certain, or when I got, when I wrote that, simply said, I thought, oh, there it is. So when you were composing the book, and I don't use that verb lightly, it's highly composed and in a really good way. Was it... It, was there any planning, or did you just intuit what was coming next based on what had come before, and that was that? Yeah. So how so how much did when you were done with the first draft, how much did you fool around? The book the book has a really complicated structure, or what what feels to a reader like a complicated structure. Right. Well, apparently, you just made it up as you went along, and it wasn't complicated at all. Right. It, 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 it it feels it feels high, really designed. And so when you went back, how much rejiggering did you have to do, or was that pretty much what it was? So initially. When I, f when I first started, the first bunch of sections that I wrote were either in Anna's, in Anna's POV, or you know, third person, but in Anna's mind, or Helen's. And um, I wrote for a while, and then you know, there were these other friends. There was Ming, there was Molly, there was Caroline. And I thought, well, why would only Anna and Helen you know, they're, if they're all old friends and they're all together, why am I only thinking about Anna and Helen? So where, what's Caroline doing? Where's she in the room? And, and it opened up the, the possibility of, of what we're all in, right? So the simultaneity of experience began to be, began to be interesting to me. So if, if what I started with was the setup, then what the sort of possibilities of what the book could be, that it was a book about time, that it was a book about memory. Um, I didn't think about it. I didn't, I, I don't think I'm smart enough to think about those things in advance. And I certainly wouldn't have thought, oh, I'm going to write a book in which I have ten different points of view. I would have thought, you know, I, I basically write books in which there are two characters, you know, and maybe some other people somewhere over there. So, when you were done, how how much did that differ from what you thought you were writing when you when you wrote what were originally the first sentences? Uh, a lot, a lot, way. Um, and 
it, more happened. So the first draft happened, and um, like Jarrett, who's the guy in the band. So, so it, by this, in the in the first draft, um, his perspective didn't enter. And um, as I started to work into the second draft, I thought why not pass the baton to someone who felt really not in the center of the thing? Can you talk about how this is, is do you guys like the inside baseball stuff? I, the book is so writerly and I have so many questions about how the you did it. I, I have other things to ask too but I, the technique stuff is fascinating to me. Because the book's not plot heavy and it's so character driven and so interior and yet feels propulsive I, as I said, I tore through it. How was that effect achieved? Was it conscious or that, prayer? Um, but, but what was? What would you tell your students here who were pray um, and drink? Uh, you know, there. Uh, I don't know. I mean, thank you. Uh, because, like you said, there's not a lot of conflict. There's not a lot. Of conflict. Not that much happens in a big way. It's not plotty in any way. The book is very much about sensibility and, and people having going through this difficult thing together, but not much in the way of, and then this happened. And yet it feels as if it has a lot of forward motion. Well, in, so I w think about all of our lives, right? You know, things are happening all the time. Like we, someone we love, um, is having an amazing thing happen. Someone we love, uh, you know, and and on our way to do that, we, you know, break our leg. And then we're in a hospital, and then uh, our, our kid calls because they've, you know, uh, gotten in trouble. You know, so the world comes at us all the time creating... Is that plot? It's not plot in the in a in what we would consider the traditional structure of plot, but it's plot as I feel like I live plot, which is a much more spiraling, circling thing. So that that's I, I'm not a I, you know so I'm I'm in huge admiration of plot. You know your book moves along with a ton of plot, and I'm like. Whoa! How do you do that? How do you think of that? how's that happening? And whoa, you know, I I, I think people, I think writers probably have, um, uh, you know, sort of natures of how they move, and I think um, mine tends to kind of create what happens by going like that. It doesn't really look fun, does it? But I, at a certain point, I mean, they'd been in the house and they'd been in the past and they'd been in the house and I knew at a certain point in the book I had to get them out of the house. So I had to figure out what I was going to do to get them out of the house. And then once they got out of the house, then I kind of thought it was like um, uh, Goldilocks and the Three Bears. Well, as they got out of the house, I wanted everyone else to come into the house and that just became sort of fun, mm -hmm. you know? In, in books where... Uh, a main character gets sick, they, they can veer to the mawkish and sentimental and uh, this book avoided that uh, pretty elegantly and uh, I would love for you to talk about uh, how you wrote about the situation with all of this uh, these emotional connections going on without it ever veering into the weeds. Illness and death are not sentimental experiences. 
um, they're brave, they're courageous, they're funny, they're banal, um, they're, uh, they're happening while everything important and big in the world is happening at the same time, you know. I mean, I think even right now, I think, for example, not to veer into this, Seth, but I, I feel like um, after the, you know, this past election, you know, people would be kind of on that high alert that everyone was after election, and then someone would say to me like, well, I don't know what to do in the world, and I, how do I do that when at the same time my, you know, my sister is ill? How can I, how can I not be at the women's march, and I have to take care of my, you know, my brother who's who's ill. And I kind of lost the thought, but I, I don't. Yeah. Being alive isn't really, um, and 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 dying isn't something for sissies. So um, I don't know. I mean, I, that's the fear, right? I I I was writing a book in which I guess it's high in sentiment, but Anna's a resilient and funny character, and her friends are funny, and people who love each other for a long time and know those shit about each other are funny usually, right? Like when you know someone for years and years and years, you, you know all the stuff, and and you can't resist, you know, kind of getting, you know, I get by with a little help from my friends, right? <laughs> In my, my deep preparation for our talk, um, I read an interview that you did with Guernica. Uh -huh. And you said something that really caught my attention. You said, what any character notices, smells, hears, is probably more telling and more reliable than what they say or what they feel. Uh, would please elaborate. Uh, that, had, that had not occurred to me, and I, I think it's, I'm fascinated by it, and I, I want to get to, the, to how you build a character. You as a writer build a character. I know how I do it, but uh, so if you could speak to that, the notion of perception and sensibility and how that feeds into your notion of character and where you go from there when you're constructing uh, a fictional person. Um, well, so much of the time what comes out of our mouths are what we think people want to have come out of our mouths. And so, um, you know, people say things to make people feel better, to be kind, to, um, uh, to sound smart, to be cool, to do all the things we do to navigate moving through the world with, you know, as, as little problem as possible and uh, nobody bugging us. But usually uh, the ways our bodies move say a whole other story and, um, uh, and as we're saying one thing, the, the way um, what we're listening to, you know, what we're distracted by tells another story. So those are, those are the... Th I don't know. How do you make that's a, that's character? A, that's a pretty good answer, actually. How do you make character? I'm interviewing you. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that really knocked me out about the book was your evocation of the physical world, which I found very enviable. I thought, oh, God, she's describing rocks again. She's doing it really well. And look at this, the flowers. Oh, man, is that just like a flower book she's got, or does she know all these flowers? And I'm thinking, maybe that's because she's a poet. And... So, so, uh, how does the poetry inform the fiction? And then, then the question about the physical world. Oh, because poets all love flowers. Of course. Well, I, I knew that. And, and painters. 
right? Yeah, I knew that. <laughs> um, well, Helen's a painter, right? right? So there's a character who's a painter, and she, and and that's the, the that character is constantly imagining. She can't kind of help but cannibalize the scene and imagine like how, what would be the best composition for this moment. How would I evoke this feeling? And so Helen gets to do a lot of that work. Um, uh, is that the poet in me? Well, um, I don't know. It, it's maybe the, the 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 better version of the painter I could have been. I get to do in writing, um, and uh, I don't know the physical world. Since I have my students still in the room, thinginess was a thing I talk about. I I I believe in the physical world. I know that doesn't. Say, I I love the physical world. So I like to bring it in. I mean, what else do we have? I guess we have the emotional world, but that's manifest through the physical world usually. I'd like to talk about how your style as a writer evolved. Uh, Elvis Costello uh, said that we, as writers, you, you imitate your betters and you fall short and that's your style. <laughs> I think I agree with that, actually. And, I would, and I would like to throw that to you. Well, uh, there are so many betters for me. Um, I, you know, I, I started as a poet, and I still think of myself, even though, you know, eight books in, I've lopsided down into fiction more than poetry, but I still really think of myself as um, a poet. And if I'm really, you know, like, I don't know, if I'm really honest, I feel like this is like one long poem. That's, that's what I was going to ask. My, uh, uh, that's probably a terrible thing to say. I think probably, uh, I don't know. It, I don't think the novel publisher would like it. I know, I know, I know. The poets in the room, yeah. Do you, do you find yourself with, with this book, I know sometimes if you're writing a scene and it's, it's a, the book is serious, but there's funny stuff in the book, you run into the problem where, oh, this is too funny. I can't use this. It's throwing the balance off. Because... Funny, you know, it's it's always great to be funny, but sometimes it can mess up the flow of what it is you're trying to do. And I wonder when you write, do you ever? Uh, the answer is probably not. But do you ever find, oh, this is too poetic. This is this is like kind of messing up the narrative in some way. Yes, I definitely um, not too poetic. I, I, yeah, I when I edit, I go through and and in this in particular, like in that scene, I'll give you an example. In the scene that the the one I read where the kid comes into the room to tell his mom that she's having that he's having a child, the first writing of that, I it was one of the first scenes that I wrote, and I really. Uh, it is really pulled back. It, the edit really pulled back the language. It, I tried, and I don't think, and just reading it now, I thought, oh, I could have made it way more flat-footed. Um, because, you know, I, one of the, the, I don't know, one of the great pleasures in writing for me is sort of the, 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 the flexibility of the English sentence. And so you can start wanting to kind of go really heavily clausal and, um, and, and that creates this kind of rhythm, which I, which, you know, if like, it feels good, but, uh, you got to pull it back. I mean, it feels good to write. And then 
and it feels good like the first time to read it to yourself and go, ooh. And then, <laughs> and then you gotta go like, just, just, you know, just. Yeah, that's sure. always a danger when you're patting yourself on the back yeah. for an effect you've achieved. <laughs> what's, what's your day-to-day -day writing life like? You get up and then what? Um, Do you, are, you, I, are you a coffee person? It, at its best, um, uh, I like to work in the morning. I'm kind of stupid by uh, later in the day. So in in the best sense of things, you know, which is uh, I would get up, I would, you know, have coffee and go in a room and work. In, in the, I, had a, I, I was luckily uh, had time away from teaching when I was writing this book, so I was actually really able to craft my day and so I would get up and yak with my really funny husband and not let him talk too much because he's really funny and I could just kind of go <laughs> so then I would um, uh, drink coffee and just go in a room and I would you know I would work until about two you want the whole day yeah. no, I would work until my perfect day is you write from you know whatever eight in the morning until two and then go to the gym and work out because you've been sitting in a chair and then go get some food and maybe see a friend and so you pay attention more to hours rather than word count i'm 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 I've word never, count i'm yeah, word I've count. never done a word count i just try to stay in a chair mm -hmm. i just try to stay in a chair and if i can't work well i just read and if i can't uh you know i just re i just try to s stay put and bear bear it <laughs> and when I get restless, you know, whatever. Make another cup of coffee. To jump way back in time before you were a successful novelist, right out of college you got a job working with Adrian Rich. I I I got I was living in Western Massachusetts, and I actually had a job in a hospital, which is what I was telling you about, in Greenfield um, Hospital, uh, and um, where they really had no business hiring me. I had no qualifications for the job I had. But uh, I lived in Montague, Massachusetts, and Adrian Rich, um, really one of our greatest American poets of the 20th century, lived in that town, and she was my great hero. And she ran a magazine in that town called Sinister Wisdom. So I finagled my way into helping them on Sinister Wisdom for a while. And the, that's well, we're going to get. Oh, it was the greatest. Um, she was. Uh, uh, she, did you ever show your work to her? Um, I know you did. Yes, I want you to I talk did. about it. Was it really, was really an it ingenuous was, question. Uh, you know, I, I held off when I first wrote her asking for the job to show her my work. You know, like. Uh, thank God. Um, but eventually she was kind enough to look at work and she was uh, kind enough to tell me that certain poems I was not, uh, I was way too close to to write. And uh, that, that uh, and she was able to say that's a good line. And, and, and she was so serious and so generous and smart uh, that when she had something good to say about a line or two, you know, I felt great. I felt great. Okay, let's go from the sublime to the ridiculous. I always ask my writer friends these days how, you, how their work is being affected by the, the political moment that we're enduring. And by work, I don't necessarily mean what the words they're putting on the page. I mean the ability to get the work done. Harder. 
right? Because um, some greater, you know, if all of us feel already trapped by some desire to like, uh, you're working away and you're having a bad time and you think, oh, probably someone wrote me an email who needs me. And uh, so now you think, oh, let me look at the world because it probably needs me, you know, and if I'm not watching it, you know. Um, so uh, none of that's good. for. Uh, uh, there's a great program, which I, I don't think you have to be a writer to think is a good idea to have in your life. And it's a program you can put on your computer called Freedom. And it means just that. You can choose how much freedom you want, and you plug in whatever you can bear. An hour, 20 minutes, three hours, and it cuts you off from the internet. It cuts you off from the internet. And it is a beautiful thing. And then and you look at your phone. And you got yeah, you got right. <laughs> but it cuts you off. So just and it cuts you off from the rabbit hole of thinking I gotta research something so that as you're writing and you can't remember what that thing is, you maybe make something else up, you know, kinda of like old school. Or you <laughs> look on your bookshelf or you just write, take a note and you write yourself a note like I gotta figure out the da da da. So, freedom. so when you're using freedom, freedom from the political world, freedom from the internet, freedom so, from it all. So, when you're using freedom these days, what are you working on? Um, I, I, I've been trying to write poems again a little bit. The hard part after I've been writing fiction is that each time I've ever gone back to poems after writing fiction for a while, I, I'm not sure what a poem is anymore, which is probably a good thing to think, but it doesn't feel very good, so I've been stumbling around. I know the feeling. Yeah, I'm stumbling around. Should we uh, take some questions? Yeah. People have any questions, or have we exhausted this? Yes. Was there a character or characters that... Um you struggled the most getting inside of. No, I really loved all these characters. I, you know, sometimes I in 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 I went I went deeper with each of them. Like on the second draft, um, there were character. You know, uh, I went. You know, I'd sort of done a certain amount with a character like Caroline, one of the five friends. And then in the second round, I thought, you haven't really gotten it, so go farther. Um, but, no, I, I, I was interested in all of them. You know, I think, it's a, I think that's one of the jobs of a writer, to be interested in what it is to be another kind of person, to, to sort of figure out the light and the dark and the imagination of another person and what, what, what they look at, what they think about. So that's, I mean, that's one of the, I think it's why I like to read, right? It's one of the goals for me in reading is to be inside, to get outside of my own, the trap of my own mind. So when you're a writer, you get to like do it, imagine your way into other people, right? It's, it's fun. You know, it's the act of empathy. Where'd the title come from? You're going to have to read the book to figure that out. I guess. So, you know, it's, uh, it, it, there's a moment in the book that, that that part of that expression comes up. Um, Before. 
before everything. Um, but, you know, I don't know. What do you think the title means? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> titles are a hard thing to talk I mean, about. I mean, titles. Is there, is there a quote in here? Is there, I no, no, no. You finished? The, I haven't finished. No. So is there a quote about before everything? There, there, that? No, there'll be, there'll be a moment where you sort of see. Okay. All right. Hold on. <laughs> Hold on. Hold on. Okay. Yeah. Do you have it cast? <laughs> Do what? Do you have it cast? Do I have it cast? Yeah, all these women. I think it's such, it's such a, a wonderful time and um, for women to be in movies and to, I mean, I can already see uh, people yeah. playing these parts. <laughs> She's got it all. I, 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 I haven't. I, no, I haven't. I but I you, well, your imagination is, you know, I'm reading this as a new person and I'm just thinking of people, you know, yeah. already. Cool. Yeah. Seeing people. Yeah, cool. Seeing people. Okay. It's an LA question. It's an LA. Yeah. It's an LA. Yeah. I've been in LA too long. Yeah, <laughs> I think so. I think so. <laughs> Thank you guys. Thank you very much. Did anyone have a last question? Did I cut someone off? Okay. Thank you. All right. Thanks, thanks for so coming. Thank you, Seth. Thank, oh, you. thank you. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon. <laughs>